Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. God has been doing something in our heart. Uh, you all know that we can't we can't live the Christian life without His help. We can't um, we can't be Christian first of all, but but also we can't do it on our own power. That um, Jesus even said, "Without me, you're nothing." He's not trying to diminish worth there. He's saying that we we can't we can't live the life that we're called to live. We can't be <clears throat> the people of God we're intended to be without His help. So, looking at First Thessalonians chapter. Uh, Chapter 1, last time we dealt with one whole verse, and I think we, we talked for an hour on that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do two verses, and so it's going to be, you do the math. Just kidding. I, I don't think it'll take quite that long today. But uh, we want to look at the next verse here. Let's just read verses 1. We'll, we'll just read the whole chapter, and then I'll, we'll pull out uh, the two verses we're going to look at in particular. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Uh, we always thank God for all of you, continually mentioning you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power and with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe trial with the joy uh, given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. And so, if you look with me once again at verse 2, verse 2, we always thank God for you all, and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So what matters here is the source from which this life comes. You understand that more important than our circumstance is what's going on on the inside of us, right? Um, we, we, uh, I've lived in a few places, and this is the best tasting water of any place I've ever lived. So I, I don't know about you, but I think our water tastes pretty good. Even right out of the tap, it can taste really good. We lived in a place where there was a lot of mining done before we moved here. And we didn't do the mining. Somebody else did the mining years and years ago. But it affected the taste of the water. It always tasted a little bit like um, it had metallic stuff in it, like you could taste the minerals in it. It, it never tasted quite right. And you're always afraid that you're going to wake up one day 
and, and grow in some area that you hadn't expected to because the water was that contaminated. And so there was thought like that. And so when we came here, I always thought that the water where I grew up was pretty good, but we came here and, oh, that's good water. And, you know, we get our water from a Klutna. Do you know that? So naturally, <laughs> you don't have to have water towers because water just kind of flows down and, and uh, comes to your faucet and mine after having been filtered out, but it tastes lovely. And so there's a good source for that. In the other instance, there's a bad source. And so the taste is bad. The outcome is bad. And, and if there's a problem, you go to the source. And, and I think that serving God comes from having a changed heart, having the source of our life, having been changed in Him. Uh, give God your heart and you will serve Him with excellence. If you really give Him your heart and allow Him the work that He wants to do in your heart, you'll serve Him with excellence. We could stop right there. Oh, please, Pastor, do. Please, stop right there. No, we're going to go on, but because I think there's some really good things in this. But the thinking is, is that if we welcome the Lord into our heart to change our heart, then the outcome of our life will be changed by that. When, uh, when I was converted to Christ, God was moving on my heart. I remember that. I think it was a Thursday night in, in August of uh, 1993, and we were at a youth convention, and I felt God moving in my heart, that he was doing something within me. He was compelling me or drawing me towards him. And, and in that moment, I felt that I should respond. I should go forward, go to the altar. Remember how we used to go to the altar? We still go to the altar. You know how we're compelled to do something like that. Anybody ever been compelled by the Holy Spirit that you need to, you need to move out from where you're sitting, that God wants you to do something? He can do it right where you're at, but maybe he wants you to move out. And I felt that I should move out. My brother... My older brother, who was a youth pastor, went with me. I was 17, and God was moving in my heart. And I felt at that moment that the thing I really needed to do was let go of some of the things that kept me from serving him. Okay? And one of those things was I, could, I cared way too much what other people thought of me. And when I, I did that, some things began to change. God began to work in my heart. He gave me a hunger for his word. He, he gave me boldness that I'd never had before. He gave me uh, a mind that wanted to study and not just play basketball or sports or whatever. There was a different direction in life. He he changed my direction. I never thought I would be a pastor, but, but it all came from a moment of heart change. And I'm, I'm talking to many here. You know exactly what I'm talking about, that you welcome Jesus into your heart and things changed. Maybe how you looked at other people changed. I remember uh, later on that year, Looking, they printed out these sheets of all the kids in our class, and I remember looking at that that picture and seeing that that most of those people they look really sad. Like I saw people through a different light because God has God was moving on my heart. So Paul is recognizing this. You could you could call chapter one models in Macedonia. Thessalonica is a a city in Macedonia, and as Paul is writing to them, he's recognizing that there show signs that God is really working in their midst, that he's really working in their heart. They're facing severe trial, and yet it's not their circumstances that create who they are. It's what God's doing in their heart. And, and I would suggest to you that more important than any circumstance we have, if it's good, if it's uh, okay, if it's bad, we can still be the kind of Christians God wants us to be if he's working in our hearts. Come on, are you with me? Is that more important than our circumstances? I think it is, because what Paul is writing to is a suffering church. We, 
we read that, I think, down here in verse 6, that you became imitators of us and the Lord, for you welcome the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. So they didn't, they didn't wait for circumstances to get just right. They received Jesus in the moment, regardless of what that meant for them. And it did mean continued suffering. You know, this is not change. I mean, we, we kind of live in a world where it's easy, and sometimes I think that that's to our detriment. But do you know, God working in our heart should still compel us, even in an easy culture. I'm not saying culture is going Jesus' way. I'm saying in comparison with the rest of the world, we have it pretty easy. Come on. I read, I read just uh, yesterday that since, tw- I think it's 2011, that in Nigeria that there's been 50,000 people that have lost their lives, faith-related. That's a lot of people. They're suffering. It's, I didn't know if you know this, but this is, it's one of the most persecuted nations in terms of Christianity. I know it has to do with regions, and there are probably safe places and really dangerous places. But the point is, is that there is suffering in the world because people have chosen to follow Jesus. They're not suffering. They're not causing the suffering. They're being recipients of the suffering because they've chosen to follow Jesus. And yet... Um, when you meet many Christians who are under persecution of one kind or another, the one thing that really shows is joy in their lives is that it's not their circumstance that determines who they are. It's what God is doing in their heart. Okay, so that's really important as you look at this to know that, uh, that God is working in the heart and that creates uh, who we are as Christians. The outflowing of our lives comes from what God is working on the inside. I think the Christian life is lived from the inside out. Do you understand what I mean by that? That God does work in our heart, and as a result, we live a certain way. As a result of him working in our heart, we, we think a certain way. We do certain things. There's, you're here today. Like, this is not a priority if God's not working in our hearts, right? <laughs> to give up our Sunday, and especially in this culture, we're all, we're all busy all the time, and there's lots of reasons not to be here. I don't have to tell you that, and I don't want to remind you of that because I don't want you to leave in the middle of this. But First Thessalonians uh, here, the first thing I, w- I want to mention related to this is, is there's a model for prayer in this. There's a model for prayer. Look at verses 2 and 3 once again. This is all uh, kind of grouped together, but then we'll, we'll break off and look at another model here. But notice it says there, we... And who is that referring to? Because we just have a, the pronoun we here. It refers back to Paul, Silas, and Timothy in verse 1. We always thank God for all of you, and we continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like you to notice here that Paul puts before us a model of prayer. You might think that, uh, what, how is this a model? He's not saying imitate me in this particular way, but, but as you look at this, you see that there is something here that is worth emulating. There's something that can be inspiring about the way Paul prays. This is a greeting, and things are difficult for them uh, in Thessalonica. And Paul wants this church to know that he's praying for them and that God is working in them in spite of the opposition they face. Okay, so he is, he is praying. Look how Paul models this prayer. 
You can see it in um, its thankfulness for authentic Christians. It says, we always, we always thank God for you. One of the things that ought to be a, a hallmark for our prayer life is thanksgiving. Okay? And, and in particular, one of the things we ought to be thankful for is other Christians. We're not in this alone. <laughs> Early on in my Christian walk, I got this renegade or cavalier, maverick. Maverick is a better word. Don't, don't think of uh, Tom Cruise. But uh, this kind of maverick that just thinks that it's you against the world. Okay? Thank God that it's not just you against the world. Not only has he given us Jesus and the gift of salvation and given us the Holy Spirit to live within us, those are the most important gifts, but he's placed us within the body of Christ where we can be encouraged. As we talked about a little bit ago, uh, singing together provides encouragement. If you stand there with your hands in your pockets and don't sing and don't participate, it's not just you that's affected by that. If we don't engage ourselves in ministry, it's not just you that's affected by that. I had the hardest time for a long time getting over the idea that men don't sing in church. And I'll tell you, uh, my dad, he was a godly man in a lot of ways, but it was only a rare occasion when he sang. I think a little bit it had to do with he didn't like some of the songs we were singing. And I understand that, but for a while there, I thought it was it was not masculine to be a man who sang. I never fancied myself a super masculine guy, but in terms of like, I'm going to go out there and conquer the world and all of that. But I thought, I don't want to, I don't want to do this if it's not manly. And I had to get over that. I had to realize that the manliest thing is to not care what other people thought and do it anyway. Come on. If you're a, if you're a guy, we need to hear your voices when we sing. Your kids need to see you participating in the things of God. It's important to their spiritual development that you do that. But he, we don't want to get too far from this. He's thanking God here for authentic Christians. So Paul, as he prays, he's thankful for what he sees as real change, and it makes him praise God. He sees that these Christians have served God despite everything being against them doing it. And so he's thankful for that. And he starts to praise God. And I think we all, we need to know this. We all get excited when God is moving in someone else's life. Okay, so when our kids come back from camp and they're giving testimony about how God has changed them, the big event has has been an opportunity for God to really get a hold of them. I can tell you what I'm thinking and many others is that we're really excited about that. We're not thinking, okay, they're going to, they haven't given the most eloquent speech not worried about that. What we're care- caring about is the fact that God has moved in the lives of our kids, and we love it. We're so thankful for that. We get excited about that. When people go to the altar, we get excited about the fact that God is working in their lives and transforming them, and that's how we ought to be is that we're not, we're not sitting thinking critically about what's going on there. We're thinking, thank God, God is working, and he's moving in the lives of other people, and we want him to work in our lives as well. And so uh, we want to see that. We want to thank God for that. He thanks God for authentic Christians. There are a lot of people out there that are not serving God faithfully. When you meet authentic Christians, be thankful for that. And we ought to say, thank you, Lord, that you are at work. I think sometimes we get the idea that God can really only truly save us. Everybody else's salvation is suspicious. 
Like, are they really, are they really saved? Um, but he's doing it. He's doing it all over the place. He's changing hearts and lives, and uh, he's not done yet. And I think sometimes we write people off, and we go like, they could never be saved. And then God gets a hold of their heart, and we've got some people that are like God's top ten list that are in this church that they were, they were far away from God in every conceivable way, and God drew them in. And if he can touch their life, I know he can touch anyone's lives. And so we, we thank God and we rejoice together for those kinds of things. And so he starts out with that kind of thankful prayer. The second thing he does is Paul, as a model prayer with these prayers, is that he continues to pray for other authentic Christians. Notice the words in verse 2 here. We always thank God for you all. And we continually mention you in prayer. And then if you look on down to the next verse, verse um, verse 3 here, it says, we remember before our God. And you don't see it in English, but this is in the kind of tense that suggests that this is a continual action. We remember continually before our God you in prayer. We remember continually before our God the work that you're doing. And so all three of these suggest to us that this kind of prayer life for other Christians is an ongoing thing. It's not like, I'm going to pray for you once. You know when you, you say, I'll pray for you. Come on, anybody know what I'm talking about? And it means that I'll file that at the back of the file cabinet somewhere. And maybe if the Lord reminds me, I'll get around to it. Paul's not like that. Paul is continually praying for other Christians. I think sometimes we give up too quick in praying for things to, to happen. There used to be a thing that used to be known as praying through, but we haven't got time for that anymore. Praying through means you pray till the answer comes, or God tells you that he's not going to do it that way. One of those two things. Praying through is pressing in on God. It's chutzpah that we're going we're gonna to stay there in the audacity to believe that God really does answer prayer. And we have faith in him to do it. This is the kind of prayer Paul is praying. It's continual prayer. It's continual prayer for these authentic Christians. I always thank God for you. We continually remember you. We remember you before our Lord and God. Okay, so notice it's thankful prayer for other authentic Christians. It's continual prayer for other authentic Christians. And the next thing that he models here is a mindfulness of the needs for other authentic Christians. He's mindful of the needs. This is important. Um, and there's something that applies to our lives related to it, that, that Paul would think about the needs of other Christians, not only when he's with them, but when he's away from them. Okay, it's easy when we're at church together. I'll pray for you, and we pray for you then, and, and uh, hopefully God comes through on your behalf. But to think about the needs of other people beyond that moment, that's, that takes a, a real uh, level of love, doesn't it? Okay, so notice that there's an unusual word that's used with prayer here that's worth thinking about. Verse 2, he says, I continually mention you in prayer. Do you see that? Verse 2, continually mention you. If you have the King James Version, I think it says something similar. I think it says mention there as well. And then verse 3 says, we remember before our God and Father. We remember. Now, the thing that's interesting about this is that mention and remember are translated from the same word in Greek that has two expressions. 
The first thing is it's to call to mind, and then it's to mention to God. It's to recall it to our mind and then to recall it to God. When he says, I remember you or we, I want to mention you, it's a word for remember and to make mention of. Okay? When he says, remember you in verse 3, it's a word for to remember and to make mention of. So these are both uh, aspects of prayer. Okay? They're translated from the same word, to call to mind and then to mention to God. And the model that Paul gives us is that he knows what's going on with them and he's praying for those things in detail. Okay? This is really important to prayer, that prayer comes from thinking about other people and not just ourselves. I don't know if you thought about this, but I would, I would ask us to think about our prayer lives and ask, what is it that we mostly pray for? Have you thought through that before? Are we mostly praying for, help me, God, do this for me, and bless me, and that's good. Pray for those things. We are in need. We need to ask the Lord for those things. But is that it? Are we praying for other people? That's intercession. Are we praying for other people regularly? Do we, do we know what their needs are? Do we get engaged in other people's lives enough to know what it is that they need that we can pray for continually? And I think there are probably some people in this room that you do that. You pray for other people. And I think there are some other people that we wish we did that, right? And other people that we don't do that. And I uh, think that what Paul is modeling for us is the kind of mindful prayer that is considerate. It considers other people where they're at. This is part of the, um, the law of the love, the law of love, the golden rule. Whatever you would have others do, to you, do for you, do for them. Okay? So this is an active prayer and an active living towards other people the way that you would want them to treat you. Do you want other people to pray for you? Now, don't take the easy way out and go, no, let's just let them work. Live and let live. You deal with your prayer needs, and I'll deal with my prayer needs, and we can all be happy. It's kind of a, a John Nash, beautiful mind approach to prayer. I'll take care of me. You take care of you. We'll all get there together. No, it's not like that in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, the way that this works is that we pray for one another. And I wonder sometimes if the reason we're not receiving God's answer to prayer in our life is that we're so focused upon ourselves. James says that, doesn't he? He says, you ask and you don't receive because you ask amiss to consume it upon yourself. And I think there's a selfishness that can even settle into spiritual things that we do, like prayer. And we need to come to the root of that. This is, once again, go to the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is that maybe we're not living in love the way we're supposed to, and we've let selfishness creep in, and the love of God is not working in our lives the way that it should be. And so that kind of prayer that Paul is modeling comes from thinking about other people and not just herself, and that prayer is bringing them up before God, reminding God about them. Now, you and I both know that God doesn't need to be reminded of them. He knows more than we do what's really going on there. But this is a way of calling to remembrance something that's a need. It's a petition to the Lord that he could work. To do this, we have to love other people like ourselves because selfishness affects not only how we act toward other people, but how we act on their behalf in prayer. And prayer is Paul's portrait 
it's not just about ourselves, but about others. And as I said, that's intercession. And it may be that sometimes God brings people to mind. But another thing that can happen, get this, spirituality is practical. Did you know that? It's not just out there, nebulous, and ooh, and we hope we get to it. No, spirituality is practical. Do you know what? We can make lists, prayer lists. It's innovative, isn't it? And here's the really cool thing is that we have this device here that you can make lists on here. And I, I know that's I'm being facetious a little bit. But if you ever see me on my phone on Sunday morning, there's one of two things happening. One is that something's gone crazy and I'm communicating with the booth. The other thing, and this is probably 99% of the time, the other thing that's happening is I'm looking at the prayer list for what we're going to pray when it comes to that moment. So I'm not texting somebody, how's church going at your church today? No, I'm thinking about what prayer needs are out there because we need to pray for that. And so these things can keep them always before our mind. And here's the really cool part, too, is you can set reminders on your lists every day that it pops up. Pray for that need. It's cheating a little bit. Doesn't it feel a little bit like cheating? But if you need that to kind of get your foot in the door like a pony to get your foot in the door uh, a little bit, uh, mix my metaphors there, but you want to you wanna get in the door a little bit, that's the way to do it. But hopefully later on, we're so engaged in other people's lives that it comes more naturally. Like, I think this is natural for Paul. He's going to pray for other people because God has put people on his heart to do that very thing. We can make those lists, and we can pray for others. And he's thankful in prayer. He's continual in prayer. He's mindful in prayer. What a great model of prayer. And you don't have to be an apostle to do that. Thank God. We can all be a part of that. In fact, some of the greatest prayers I know, they don't have a title. They're just somebody who is willing to intercede. Let me move quickly to a model of serving in verse 3. This is a model of serving these these Christians in Thessalonica, you hear about this, that you became a model, your faith rang out, everybody's talking about it, about what wondrous things God's doing in your midst. You turn from your ancestral idols to serve the living and true God. Um, things are happening that are transforming hearts and transforming city, the city. And I think the same God that did it then can do it again. He, he does this within our lives. And so notice verse 3 here that he's remembering before God uh, and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I, w- I want to mention before we look at this in any more detail that this is a greeting, okay? This is Paul greeting them, and he's acknowledging something that is. Okay? He's not here making a statement about what should be, other than we kind of get the idea that this is a good thing because he's bringing it up, and this is probably be, should be the way that it should be with all Christians, is that we should, we should have this kind of response, that there is a the work that is produced by faith, a labor prompted by love and endurance inspired by, the, by hope. Okay, so this is a greeting that he's giving, uh, but it tells us something about how life should be lived. And it tells us some things about the authentic Christian life. These people have, have been really, really transformed, and they're some of the most unlikely people. These are, these are people who grew up in homes where they served, most of them, other gods. I get that impression when I read verse 6 that 
they turn to God from idols suggests that the majority of the Christians that he's writing to here didn't come out of the synagogue. The majority of the Christians he's writing to here came out of, out of pagan faith. They believed in other deities. They had to appease the gods to, to make sure that they didn't get bad luck or some kind of calamity to come upon them. And so when they heard about Jesus, something clicked. The Holy Spirit was speaking to them, and they responded to him, and they were transformed. And God began working in their hearts, and it began to produce an outflow from their lives. That Because he was at work on the inside, things began to happen on the outside. And that's the way that it should be, is that there ought to be real transformation. The internal work produces an external expression. But these people have really been changed. We know that some of them come from worshiping idols, uh, verse 6 and verse 9. And it seems incredible that people should come from that far away to, to turn to God. But it, and as Paul found out, uh, that many times the people that are most easily converted were not the religious people. Anybody know what I'm talking about? It's often the religious people that are difficult. But uh, take heart, because God can even get a hold of religious people. Amen. I didn't get a resounding amen out of that. But I know you believe it in your heart that that's true. And so we can know that he can touch those who have uh, put up the walls of religion. to, And people can do that. You can put up the walls of ritual in order to keep God at a distance. If I just do this ritual, then I'm close to God or he'll be pleased with me instead of really opening up. This was an issue. It's going all the way back to the Old Testament. So what Paul is doing here is he's not commanding. He is commending them. He's not commanding them. He's commending them. The difference between commending and commanding is a single letter. But one is giving an order, commanding, and the other is giving a compliment, commending. Command expresses what needs to be done. Commend talks about what is being done. And what's being recognized is that there is a work that they're doing in their life as a result of the faith that they have in God. Okay? And the other thing that's happening is that there's a labor that they're going through that's prompted by love. And the other thing is that they have endurance that's inspired by hope. So these, these things that are true, these virtues that are happening in their lives are producing something in them. Faith, hope, and love. Did you notice that? These three remain, faith, hope, and love. These are the primary Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love. Primary Christian virtues. And four times in the New Testament, they're mentioned together. What is a virtue? Because that's kind of a vague word to, to us. Webster uh, has eight definitions. And if you have your notebook, write all of them down. No, I'm just going to mention one of them to you. Uh, and this one's the most closely related to what we're talking about. He calls it the secret agency, efficacy without visible or material action. So before there's ever any kind of external expression of it, something is taking place in the heart. Okay, So the, this, when we're relating it to the virtues, this invisible power, okay, um, maybe a good way to illustrate this is the virtue of being able to get up off the couch. Anybody sat on the couch before and you've thought to yourself, I want to get up. I should get up. I'm getting up and sat there. Does that happen to anybody else? I'm getting up now. 
I'm getting up. And we tell ourselves, but then we exert that secret energy and we lift ourselves off of our bottoms and onto our feet. And we go the way that we're going to go because there's, there's a strength that's there when it's properly applied. We can get up off the couch and we can go. Okay, this is a description of virtue is there's something, some hidden strength that activates spiritual muscle and legs and arms to get up. Think of uh, what the writer of Hebrews wrote, lift up those hands that hang down and strengthen those feeble knees. You know, there's a time when we need to exert that virtue that's within us. God's uh, begun the work. He's doing a work. We're trusting in him. We've got these these virtues that are, are strengths that are within us. Faith is a strength. And I, I don't want to get weird about it. Uh, but there's strength in believing in God. It propels us in a direction that produces the kind of life that God requires of us. Do you know that? That when you really trust God, there will be an outworking of that faith in something known as works. Okay? When we really, we really uh, have love for God, we're willing to labor for Him and to do what He calls us to do. We'll talk about that in just a moment. And when we really do have hope, we can endure almost anything. Do you know that? You can endure when you have hope because you know that at some point things are going to change. It's not going to always be this way. And so those things are the virtues that rest within us. Notice that the principle is that the internal produces the external. Proverbs says, above all else, guard your heart because from it flows the issues of life. Be careful where your heart is because if your heart is unprotected, can take you in another direction. If your heart is kept pure before God, it will take you in the right direction with him. Think about some of the others. Jesus said that it's from the heart comes life, sin, and speech. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's out of the religious leaders criticizing because the disciples of Jesus were eating without washing their hands. Probably for hygiene's sake, they should have. But that really wasn't the point was it? The point was that people were, the people were attaching a spiritual uncleanness to them. And Jesus says it's not what goes in that defiles. It's what comes out. When there's a problem in the heart, it begins to produce things like uh, lusts and adulteries and thieves and greed and all the things and, and terrible things that we say to other people all come from a bad heart. And he said that you will know the kind of tree that they are by their fruit. James says uh, our words originate in our heart. That out of the talks about can uh, bitter waters flow from a sweet spring. And then he says out of the same heart flow blessing and cursing. It's almost as if that's a, a question. Out of the same heart flow blessing. How can this be? This ought, the King James says, this ought not so to be, my brethren. How can this be that you have this source producing sweet and bitter waters? Doesn't make sense. Something's wrong at the source. James says that. The outworking of our life, our lives come from the, the Lord, the good man and the bad man. And what that means is that real lasting life change doesn't start with change in behavior. It comes from a change of heart. Okay, so we can't program ourselves into being a better Christian if we've never had a supernatural encounter with God. I don't mean by supernatural encounter that the clouds split and a ray of sunshine shone down upon you. 
and you felt as if you heard an audible voice and you had the Holy Spirit goose pimples. I don't mean that. What I mean is that there is sometimes even unperceived to some a supernatural thing that takes place called being born again. Until that happens, we can, we can be as holy as we want to be or try to be, but we can't really be righteous in him because that comes from the gift that God gives uh, to us. Everything we do will just be as one standing on the outside looking in, trying to be like those who are on the inside. And uh, this is not an exclusive club. This is for everybody. God wants all to be saved and come to repentance. He doesn't want to lose any. So what he's really calling us to do is to turn to him with all of our hearts. And that's what he really wants. And then the change of behavior can happen. Our actions will follow that. The Revised English Bible, I like, to, I like this translation. Sometimes it says things in ways that really shake things loose for us and help them to really click. Um, it says it this way, verse 3, we continually call to mind before our God and Father how your faith has showed itself in action, how your love in labor and your hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in perseverance, that these, these virtues, these characters produce something on the outside. So what we need is for God to work on the inside, and then something will be produced on the outside. The first thing he mentions is work produced by faith, okay? We'll go quickly as we can with this, but faith and works are often found together in the Bible. I don't know if you know that. Sometimes they're seen as these opposite kind of things that it's one or the other, and and we live in our Western culture in kind of a, a dialectic kind of approach to thinking that it's one or the other. And, and this often is a struggle. And so we find people who are on the extreme of, of sort of the justice of God. And then there are others who are on the extreme of the love of God. And what we need to understand is there's a synthesis of those things. And the synthesis with faith and works is that they both operate together. Come on, are you with me? They operate together. They work together. And the big controversy is whether we are justified by our works or by faith. Paul says, not by works are you justified. And it seems as if James is saying, if, if you read the words there, it sounds like he's saying that we are justified by our works and not faith. But he doesn't say not faith. He says not faith alone. He's talking about the kind of faith, and listen to me closely, the kind of faith that is so real that it produces works. Come on, are you with me? That that's the kind of faith God wants, is a faith that is works producing. It's not, sometimes we get the cart before the horse. We get the, we get the engine behind what should follow, the, the compartment full of the goods, right? And what that it means is that we say, if I, have, if I have works, then it will produce faith. And we've gotten it backwards, we need to have faith first, and then the works will come. It's not that God doesn't want us to have works or we should never talk about works or anything like that. It's that they have to be in their proper order. And they remain closely connected. James points out faith does produce works. It's not the works themselves that justify us. And let me say something, maybe a little controversial, but hear me on it. It's not really even faith that justifies us. It's God who justifies us in response to faith. God is the justifier, not our faith. It's God who justifies us. And so, 
Faith is just the response to God, and works are the response to true faith. They remain closely connected. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm taking us out of 1 Thessalonians, but you'll know this one, so you can mark it down and check it later if you like. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith. This not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. Okay? Now, you could stop there and just go, he doesn't care about works. Yes, he does, because it says, for we are God's handiwork or workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Created in Christ Jesus to do good, which God planned in advance for us to do. So the works here probably refer to the living of the Christian life. This is the outflowing. When you read the word uh, works here, the definition that's given in the lexicon is those things that we'd normally do. There's a different kind of life that's lived in Christ because we're trusting in him. Okay? We go about life differently. The things that we do are different because God is working in us and we have faith in him. Okay? We live differently. We trust his commands. We trust his, his callings. We trust his way about things. Not only what we do, it's how we do them that matters to him. And so all of that is affected by faith. It's produced because faith is in our heart. Because we have faith, it's going to produce works. The second thing he mentions here is a labor prompted by love. Now, we hear works and we hear labor, and they sound kind of alike, don't they? I mean, they don't sound alike. We see them as synonyms, maybe a better way to say that. Uh, but this labor is prompted by love. It means that because we have love, I think the primary thing here is love for God and then love for others, that it produces a kind of labor, okay, a labor. We're just going to leave it at, at that, a labor. Um, the definition for labor here, listen to this, is to engage in hard work, implying difficulties and trouble. That's the lexical definition of this Greek word. Hard work, implying difficulties and trouble. There's, a, there's sometimes hard work in God that we need to do that requires of us energy, Okay? It requires of us to exert our muscles and get up off the couch and move and go in God's direction and, and do the thing to where we have worked ourselves until we're exhausted. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but there's a satisfaction in that. In having worked hard for the things of God, it's not work in your own power, but it's work that is prompted by Love. It goes on to talk about in the lexicon, the, the dictionary on this, that this is hard work, toil, um, labor. And this is the same word when Jesus comes along the uh, sea in Luke chapter 5 and meets Peter there. And he says, have you guys caught anything? And Peter says this, we've worked hard, we've labored, we've labored all night and caught nothing. It's hard work. I don't know if you've fish like this before, but it's not thin nylon nets that Peter and his boys are throwing into the water. These are thick rope nets that they're throwing in time and again, and they get wet, and they they pull them back out, and there sometimes they had fish. This time they didn't have fish, but you do that long enough, you know you can get, you can get really worn out doing something like that, and so Peter says, we've worked hard at this. This isn't the labor in the Lord, but it helps us understand that this word suggests hard work. And I would like you to think about this, that what we call labors of love 
are usually those things that are in a special category that are difficult. And the only reason we do it is out of love. Okay? It doesn't mean that we'd rather not have it another way. I think of a mom who wakes up because her child is sick and she takes care of her child. Okay? My mom did this for me when I was growing up. and I know, and it doesn't hurt my feelings. She would have rather been sleeping. Are you with me? Sometimes there's I'd rather, but I'm doing this because I love you. Okay, and those two things are not in conflict. It actually proves the love by showing that a person is willing to sacrifice what they want for someone else, for God. And I'm willing to do it even though I don't feel like it, even though I don't want to. I would rather be doing something else, but I'm here, God, because I love you. Right? I mean, the chief thing is that we just always want what God's, God wants all the time. And if you found the secret to that, let me know. Because I think that there's probably times when we wake up and we have to say with Paul, I die daily, right? I beat my body and I make it my slave, right? So that we follow him despite the fact that the flesh wants to do something else. It's a labor that's produced by love. God, I love you. I want to do what you want me to do. Not because it's always easy. Sometimes it's really hard. Sometimes there's real difficulty in it. But I want to do it because I love you. Love becomes the impeller to this kind of labor. And uh, this would be a great time to talk about all the service needs that we have (laughs) at Maranatha. Uh, Check with uh, your ministry representatives throughout the church, and they'll let you know. But there is a labor that's prompted by love, and we do things out of love for God. And, and let me say on that, that I say thank you for what you do in, if you serve in this church, but I know you're not doing it for me. You're doing it out of love for God and other people. And I think that pleases God's heart because I know it's not always convenient. Sometimes we'd rather be doing something else. If you, have a, if you teach kids' church or Sunday school, you don't just have that hour or however long it takes the pastor to get done talking. You've also got to prepare in advance for that. And so when you do that, that that blesses the Lord. And I want you to know that's really important to him. It's important to us, too, and I think it's important to the vision of what God wants to do here, that we're all part of the ministry of God. And sometimes that requires a labor of love. A third thing is an endurance inspired by hope. I hope to move through this quickly. Uh, Hope here, endurance, excuse me, is it comes from a word that means, check this out, to bear up under difficulty. Sometimes living the Christian life for these Thessalonian Christians, for us as Christians at times, just continuing in the same direction requires that we bear up under difficulty. We keep going the same way even though we're going against resisting material, whatever that is. Other people coming against us, standing against us, circumstances don't go the way we want. Somebody that we looked up to let us down. Um, Our culture is moving away from this as a priority. We're finding out that for the first time, actually, church attendance is in massive decline. Okay, We've said it is going on a lot. It really is. And we can get discouraged by that or we can bear up under difficulty and keep going. Okay. Um, serving God and doing the right thing when it's hard, like everything's against us, it seems, or people are against us. 
we bear up under difficulty. For these Thessalonian Christians, just by way of comparison, if they worked in the marketplace, one of the things that we know happened is that people got their little market booth where they sold goods for their livelihood, boycotted because they were Christian. We know that happened. And so that meant less money in the bank and sometimes real hardship. God always takes care of people, but he doesn't. Can I just use a southern expression? He doesn't always let us live high on the hog, okay? We sometimes uh, have to eat the the lower, you know what I'm talking about. Um. So the point that I'm trying to make here is that there is, there is difficulty in following God at times, but if we have hope in our heart, this hope says, I believe in God, and it's an expectation of good things to come because of Him. And one of the expectations is that no matter how bad it is today, it will not always be like this. In fact, the other thing is that there is a break in the clouds, and we can know that not only will it not be bad, but it will be really, really good. I encourage, I'm encouraged by this thought. I, the first part of it is not so encouraging, but for the unbeliever, no matter how good a day they have, there's a bad day ahead unless they repent. Okay, Remember how it says in James, you who are rich, weep and wail because the day is coming when your riches will be taken away. But if you're, he's talking to the poor there, he says, if you're poor, rejoice because you, you've got a reward in heaven. So think of this, the alternative, the opposite of that is this. No matter how bad of day you have, there is a good day ahead. The best day you've ever had is ahead. The best day you've ever had. I mean, birth of your children, marriage, you you got to go to, I don't know, Disneyland, wherever it is. Whatever it is that you're calling your high mark, hopefully it's not that. Um, There's a better day ahead. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, neither has it entered the mind of man, what God has prepared for those who love him. So you can know that there's hope in this, in serving Jesus, that it can, we can bear up under difficulty if we know that it won't last forever. Where people get discouraged, and this is one of the things I think maybe Viktor Frankl might have written about this in The um, Man in Search of Meaning, where when people in the concentration camps, he's in the concentration camp, during World War II, when they lost hope, it wasn't long until they died. The people who maintained their hope, they survived and thrived even within that horrid environment. I think that can be true. We're not, we're not talking about anything on the same level of that. But life is a struggle. We have God, but there's still, we're still, we still feel the pull of gravity from this world. And what we need to do is we need to bear up under difficulty with hope. Hope in our heart will give us perseverance in our step. We can keep going and keep going and keep going like the pink bunny. Okay? And uh, for us, I think we should be inspired by this. I found it really impossible as a pastor to, to change people's hearts. I can't. I can't do that. I've wanted to inspire people. I know I'm not a cheerleader. Um. If there's any inspiration, any heart change that comes from this, it's going to have to be God that does it. It's impossible to get people to do what they don't want to do. You know that? You can't because what they have to do is they have to buy in and there has to be a heart change. And so today for this to happen, that has to, 
take place in us. Often it's a motivation problem, and I think that when the Christian life is lived poorly, it's a problem usually in the heart. Maybe we're unconverted. Unconverted just means we haven't really bought into the Christian life. We haven't really surrendered to Christ. We haven't welcomed him. We haven't, we haven't entered the kingdom. Okay? Christian life is not possible without repentance and faith and the supernatural taking place in us. It doesn't have to be felt, in, like I said, in some glorious beam of light. It has to be real repentance and real faith in Christ. And when that happens, the supernatural can even go unperceived at first. But it will produce change in you if it's real. And if we're having a problem in the heart, then and we haven't yet come to that place where we've welcomed Christ as our Lord and Savior. Not just Savior, listen, Lord. Do you know what that means? He means he, he gets to make the decisions. I don't think that he'll take every decision-making opportunity away from you. But what it means is that everything is lived in light of him. It goes through the rubric of, is this pleasing to the Lord or not? Okay. So we trust him for being saved, but we also trust him as the leader of our lives. The second area where this could go wrong is that if we're unrepentant, maybe we've held on some some old ways. Let's say that you've been converted and you've come to Christ, but there's an area of your life that now has become a stronghold because you have unrepentance there. We hold on to some old ways without seeking forgiveness, and these are idolatries, really. Any, any area that lies outside of the lordship of Christ is an idolatry. It's a realm of idolatry, okay? And so what we need to do is we need to cast our idols down. I love those Old Testament passages, which are so... Uh, wonderful for teaching New Testament truth when, like, Josiah comes in and he tears down the shrines and he grinds them into powder and he builds a wall in the old place of the old shrine and he says, nobody's going to build a shrine here again. I love it because it shows us what we need to do. I like it when Jacob has all the idols brought together and he melts them down. Do you remember that? Okay, got rid of the idols. says, we're not doing that anymore. We're not giving place to those things in our lives. If you allow an idol in your life, pretty soon it will dominate you. So we've got to cast those down and say yes to Jesus and not be unrepentant. We may have some areas that are unsurrendered, meaning, God, I'm giving you all but not this. We hold our old ways without, oh, excuse me, we still think of our lives as our own instead of fully his. And I think this is a big problem in the American church is that we think we can have Jesus as an accessory, like a Gucci bag. He's, he's going to be something in our lives that will make it a little fancier. And it's not like that with serving Jesus. He is our all in all, or he's nothing to us. Come on, it's not anywhere in between. And so when we have this area that's not surrendered to him, it once again is a loud statement. It's a billboard that says Jesus is not Lord in this area. And that can be a real problem for seeing him move through our lives in areas of faith, hope, and love and produce these kinds of things. And then a final one is unbelief. And unbelief is always coupled with disobedience. Unbelief is not struggling with doubt. It's not the same thing. Unbelief is usually when something is said and we refuse to believe it. Okay? That's different. Doubt is to be in two minds. That's a problem, but it's a problem of a different kind. Unbelief is a more willful resistance against believing in God. 
God says to the children of Israel, go in to the land. I promised this to you. They're, they're huge. We can't go in there. We're like grasshoppers compared to them. How do they know what they look like to the Canaanites? Well, they didn't believe and they refused. We would rather die in the wilderness. And isn't it amazing that that's exactly what God lets them do? Because they refused to believe. And we don't believe what God said and move out into those areas he's called us to. That can be a reason why these, our heart hasn't been transformed to the way that would produce the life God wants. Does God still get a hold of hearts today? Does he still break people free? I can remember the early days when God changed me. It wouldn't be too far off to say that my life was taken up into him and something in me came alive as a result. I think probably most of you know what I'm talking about, but it happened when I let go of everything else to embrace him. I don't want to put my experience up as the pattern for you. The really important thing is that God welcomes those who fully trust him, and if you'll fully trust him, he will begin that internal work in you. See, fuel, this is fuel for spiritual living. It's not only, um, it's not going to only affect what we do, but how we do it. Think of the aroma of Christ that can surround us in these works and these labors and these endurances. I think when we really get it God's way, it's not, it's not a bitter sacrifice. It's, this is my joy to serve you in this way. And if I have to go through trouble, to do it with a certain kind of fragrance. Jane and I know a guy who converted his truck to run on French fry oil. Maybe you've smelled him. He drives around, and wherever he goes, it smells like French fries. <laughs> what a wonderful thing. And spreading everywhere, the fragrance of fries. And I think of, of the spiritual application of that is that whatever fuel you're running on, it has a fragrance to it. Right? And I think it's important that faith, hope, and love be grounded in our lives, and I think there will be an output not only in what we do, but how we do it. The main thing can't be work. It can't be labor. It can't be endurance, or we will burn out. If we start there and go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to endure this because I'm gritty and I'm tough, you're going to burn out. If you set about trying to do the Christian life, you're going to find yourself disappointed again and again. If you try to labor in the difficult things of God and you try to do it in your own strength, you will burn out. But if you minister out of the overflow, if you live out of the overflow of what God is already doing on the inside, things can be different. So having these in place, we'll be encouraged in the Bible to discipline ourselves for work and labor and endurance. Having the fuel, we can drive in the direction that God would want us to go. There's a lot of service that needs to be accomplished, and we can do all that with God's help. And where does it start? Because we're talking about things that will happen within us. How do we get to that place? Do we, can we produce love in our heart for God? I think this is response, folks. Listen, God loved us. Remember what the Bible says? We love because he first loved us. God loved us. We see that love. We trust him because we know he loves us. Okay? And then out of that, Faith works by love. 
It produces love in our heart for him, and that produces all the outflow of our life that we need. I think there could be some that are here today that are standing far away from Christ. They might be skeptical, thinking, I don't know if I can ever do this. Look, I'm not saying they can do it because you can do it. I'm saying we can do this when God begins that internal work in our hearts. Stand with me if you would. Let's respond to the Lord today. When there's love, there is action. When there's faith, there's action. When there's hope, there's action. Jesus is an expression of the love of God. When it says God so loved the world, it's important that we understand that so begins the sentence, and it means in this way, God loved the world. He gave his son. That's the outworking. That's the produce of his love. And we can have, when we have the internal working of God in place, it will produce results. Today, maybe as we draw to a close here, you're thinking about how maybe there's some things in your life like these obstacles I mentioned a moment ago. Something struck you, like there's a reason that I'm not living the Christian life that God wants me to live. I want to invite you to to see that change today. Maybe the first place we need to start is with, um, if you've never welcomed Christ to be Lord and Savior of your life, would you do that today? You can't live the Christian life, nor would you probably want to, unless you've welcomed Jesus. So today, would you be willing to say to him, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, for Jesus' sake. You've You've died for me and you rose again. And seeing your love for me, I want to trust you and I want to give you my life. I want to live a life of love towards you. Something like that. You make the prayer yours, but something like that. Maybe there's an area that's not surrendered to him and it's keeping these virtues from bringing strength into your life. Other things are dominating. Idolatries maybe. And we need to deal with that. Would you today say, Lord, I'm casting down my idols and I'm, I'm turning to you. And I want you to do this internal work in me that creates the beautiful Christian life. Maybe there's a, an area where you're not surrendered or it may be that we haven't cultivated. Every gift of God needs to be cultivated. And we do actually have to get up off the couch and do it. If it's enduring, we have, to, we have to do it, but we do it with God's help. If it's working, the work of God, we have to be obedient, but we do it with his help. If it's laboring, we have to do it with God. If you're a parent, you have a labor of love given to you by God, and your service to your kids is not only out of love for them, but it's out of love for God. And you know how hard at times that can be. But you, you do it, but you do it with God's help. But that's all cultivated because God's begun to work on the inside. Would you say to him, Lord, do that work on the inside of me and transform me. I'm going to open up the altars. If you'd like to come and pray for a few moments, I'm going to. I want the virtues of faith, hope, and love to produce in my life like it did in the Thessalonians. Would you join me? Amen. Would you give God space on the inside to work out his will in you? I said it wouldn't be two hours. I'm sorry it went this long. God bless you. Father, we ask that you would uh, take this word, Lord, that you would seal it in our heart. It would be a, uh, be a transforming word. And we pray that you help us to live out the faith you've called us to because of 
your spirit and your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. See you Wednesday. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.